love, social convention, gender roles, and religion. Charlotte Bronte's most famous novel challenges ideas on all these topics, and we are here to discuss it. I'm Charlene. And I'm Mike. And this is Jane Eyre Files. Chapter 9 Sweet Days of Liberty. Hello, husband. Hello, darling. Oh. I, I mean, <laughs> you know, I think we're going to get Are you into quoting it. quoting from the book? Or we're <laughs> we're going to get into it with this chapter that most of it is Jane describing what's going on around her. Mm-hmm. So there's not a whole lot of dialogue, not a whole lot of conversation. And so I counted. There are only two instances in this entire chapter where someone refers to Jane with a term. Mm-hmm. One of them is child when Jane is talking to the nurse who is who has just gone in to see Helen. And then the other one is darling, which is what Helen calls Jane mm-hmm. before she departs <laughs> this earth. Oh, I know. I, well, I, we don't want to get too dark too fast because this is a dark chapter. But I did want to mention that this is our 10th episode, and I feel like this is a little bit of a milestone because I read a report from this year that analyzed data from Apple Podcasts, and it said that 64% of podcasts have fewer than 10 episodes. So uh, we are now in the top 36% of podcasts. I'm just going to leave it like that. That's that's amazing. 64% don't actually get the 10 episodes. People have have an idea. They throw it up there. I think it's also partly the the pandemic where people just were home and they started a podcast Mm. and they're like, yeah, this is not what I want to do. Maybe. (laughs) I was afraid I would would, uh, experience that when I first started this, but I think we will get to the end. You made it to 10. You, 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 you You have an end goal. You know, mm-hmm. I, we talk about it like the other podcast that I do, Out of Touchstone. We're going to record our forty-eighth episode. I know this it's week. amazing, yeah, yeah. And it's only and it's only been uh, two years. Yeah, we've been, we've been doing these episodes, mm-hmm. and I. But then, like, there are two hundred Touchstone movies, so I've got, mm-hmm. I've got, a, I've got. A, there is a, there's a finish line, but yeah. it's, I've got a lot to kind of lead up to where we've got essentially what thirty-eight chapters of Jane Eyre, and we yeah. can do other bonus episodes, which I definitely plan on doing. But hey, first ten was was fun. Let's see how the rest of them go. Yeah going to be amazing i'm sure so let's get into our spark note summary of chapter nine in the spring life at lowood briefly seems happier but the damp forest dell in which the school resides is a breeding ground for typhus and in the warm temperatures more than half the girls fall ill with a disease jane remains healthy and spends her time playing outdoors with a new friend mary ann wilson helen is sick but not with typhus Jane learns the horrific news that her friend is dying of consumption. One evening, Jane sneaks into Miss Temple's room to see Helen one last time. Helen promises Jane that she feels little pain and is happy to be leaving the world's suffering behind. Jane takes Helen into her arms and the girls fall asleep. During the night, Helen dies. Her grave is originally unmarked, but 15 years after her death, a gray marble tablet is placed over the spot, presumably by Jane, bearing the single word resurgum, Latin for I shall rise again. So we're going to, it's going to, it's going to get a little sad, but this chapter begins by Charlotte Bronte and Jane describing spring coming to Lowood in these very vivid terms. And it kind of shows that Jane's like her life is, is, is brightening 
with her this personal freedom, which we're going to learn more about why she has a little bit of personal freedom mm-hmm. at Lowood right now. Rebirth, right? Would you say yeah. that there's a little bit well, of a rebirth? But she's finally coming into her own. That's true. That, you yeah. know, she's got guidance from from teachers. She's got the love of this this yeah. good friend who's taken her. Something, you know, unfortunately, he's about to leave her. But mm-hmm. she's getting getting yeah. It's, it's she's like getting more spring confidence. has sprung, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, and it's it's and it's, it's weird. and it's interesting to me because I have lived most of my life in California, and I don't get changing seasons. I don't see, you know, leaves turning and and uh, snow and all that stuff. So it's it's a mm. uh, very, very vivid for me to see it described. I'm sure you know yeah. <laughs> a little I mean, bit of the changing seasons. It's it's great, but it can also be a little depressing too. I mean, I'm I, I'm, I think yeah yeah. I'm, I don't know I'm, if I'm, I would trade my experience of <laughs> always sunny weather. <laughs> it has its moment. I mean, I'm from the Midwest, and mm. so uh, I know you and I have talked about this many, many times since we've known each other. But my favorite month out of the year was always March. Because mm-hmm. I, I can vividly remember more specifically when I went when I first went off to college, I went to a university. I went to Northern Illinois University, which is about an hour west of Chicago. And it's in a town, unfortunately, named DeKalb, which is yeah. my last name and your last <laughs> name now. Um, but because it was we was in the middle of a cornfield, it was very flat there. So the wind from Chicago, the windy city, would blow into our town. So it would get really mm-hmm. cold. The first semester the first fall semester that I went to school there, we got a dusting of snow the last week of October, mm-hmm. you know, and so it would get brutally cold sometimes, but then March was always so beautiful, you know, in like a lion, out like a lamb is the yeah. expression. I remember one year we got a blizzard first week of March, but by the end of March, the, the trees would have, would start to bloom, oh, wow. the weather would change. So I was meant, I have fond memories of March. I'm a big sports fan, so I like March Madness and college mm-hmm. basketball, but also usually that's when the daylight savings kicks in. And so it's there's something about that month of March, but like like you said, if you haven't been around it, yeah. I mean, I take you home to visit my my family for Christmas, and so I it's, know. It's, it's sort of a new experience for me. And then we went to Minnesota, and we went to this arboretum where uh, I forgot what month we were October. there. October. So yeah, the the trees were changing colors, and it was just gorgeous. I was taking so many pictures, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, had you never seen that before? I guess in that in not that regard, real, not the fall not, colors. Yeah, not in such a like large display because i think well we have arboretum here in california but it's you know it's everywhere in minnesota it was, it was so beautiful yeah but like you said and i think the winter can be a little especially when the, when the trees start to lose their leaves and it gets mm-hmm. cold and blustery and it and you get the overcast and but i yeah. think that's what makes to me and i guess we'll get into it now that this is easily the most powerful chapter yet, yet yeah. and possibly for the rest of the book i, I can't remember which uh. ones are more i mean as far as i mean those the future chapter might be more emotional this one is just it's just there's something about the juxtaposition of life versus death in this I whole see. chapter it's not a very yeah. long it's not a very long chapter no, either oh it's very focused on helen yeah and it's sort of but it's weird it's weird how it starts out so bright and chipper and yeah. I, I think we mentioned in one of our earlier episodes that I think it was when Jane was taking the the the, the, the horse carriage ride from Gateshead to mm-hmm. Lowood. I wish it would have been more descriptions because she talks about these rolling hills and stuff. And, oh, yeah. And so when you first start reading chapter nine, you're just like, oh, okay, wow, spring is sprung. And she's talking mm-hmm. about all the flowers. And it's really starting to paint this vivid description in your head. And it's one of the things that I, I mean, I'm really impressed, continue to be impressed by Charlotte Bronte and her writing style mm-hmm. based on this chapter. Because I feel like she transported me there, you yeah. know. But then, yeah, like you said, the the darker happenings, you know, the reason that Jane gets personal freedom in this chapter is because 
there's more kids that are sick and they yeah. have to be sort of quarantined off and now yeah. there's more room for like Jane to move around the school. Teachers are busy. They can't, they can't have lessons. So she's free to roam around these beautiful grounds of Lowood. And, and you get this real strong sense that Jane is really appreciative of nature and, be- and the beauty, which, you know, you didn't get so much of that in the previous chapters because she was so downtrodden. Well, yeah, and I wanted to ask you because, like, you mentioned that, you know, there's no possibility of going for a walk that day. The first mm-hmm. line in the book, we, we, I think you alluded to the fact that Jane seems to not like going for walks when she was at Gateshead. Right. You know, she preferred reading books and stuff. And yet now she's talking about the beauty of nature and it's, it's, we're starting to see some more personal growth, right? Even though, even though I think you've mentioned like the idea that sadness just continues to sort of permeate her life. Yeah, can't get away from it. Yeah, she finally comes out of her shell a little bit thanks to Helen Mm -hmm. and then now immediately deaths around her. She can't, she can't catch a break. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, well, I mean, let's, let's touch on the fact that there is a epidemic of typhus at Lowood, um, which you know, it's funny now because we're in a pandemic, so I feel like I've, I've paused a little more while reading this chapter, thinking more about what they're going through, what the kids are going through. Like Jane, I wonder if she's scared if she's if she's going to catch typhus or what might happen to her. And then, of course, the kids who are sick and they don't know exactly what's going to happen to them and the teachers have to care for them. It's just, it's, it, you know, it's it's so sad. <laughs> It's so sad to read everything that that they're going through and think, wow, you know, this is happening right now in a way. You know, it's a, we feel a little bit better now because we have vaccines, we have science, but back then they don't they don't know even know how it's spread. Oh, yeah. They just it's just random, you know, maybe to them. No precautionary measures really in place. It was just yeah, just I mean, pressure they, luck almost, right? Yeah. Like they don't they don't they don't know they I mean, I I think I we, we, I, what was really interesting was when we both read this chapter, we ended up going down a rabbit hole a little bit of involving bacteriology. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I remember all these names from my high school science classes, yeah. von Leeuwenhoek and, mm-hmm. and Alexander Fleming and Joseph Lister. And I, I just thought it was really kind of, it's a little sad. It's a little unfortunate that like, you know, this is all taking place the first half of the 19th century. You know, not that like it's sort of the events of this book, I assume, would have been happening at the same time. This is when Charlotte Bronte is alive, basically, yes. from the 1820s to the 1860s, right? Mm-hmm. And so, but then I looked it up and I saw that like all those guys, like Robert Koch and Louis Pasteur, Joseph Lister, you know, all of their breakthroughs happened in the second half of the 19th century. Yeah. Like the Bronte family just sort of just missed it. Yeah, and, and it's, it's at, even though they said it's weird, these are these are fictitious characters. In this book, and yet mm-hmm. you do feel for them. You know, this this chapter really hit close to home based on what we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. But like you said, they just it was just so helpless because they the science wasn't there. They didn't yeah. know what was causing it, and you were just hoping that it wouldn't strike you. Yeah, and I believe at the time, you know, or I should say, when Charlotte Bronte was at that clergy daughter's school, that Maria and her older sister Maria and Elizabeth they they were there when there was. A typhus epidemic that typhus swept through that school so it's it's exactly what happened to her mm. as a child and then it's theorized that then um elizabeth and Mar- mariah got tuberculosis you know their weakened immune system through that experience and yeah it's um it's charlotte bronte revisiting probably a very painful t- uh, memory for her yeah and then didn't and then of course the famous sisters 
Uh, yeah. So and, then, you know, Emily and Anne both had tuberculosis as well, right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So you know, there's typhus going through Lowood, but Helen Burns is, does not have typhus. She has tuberculosis, and you know, she seems like she's had it for a little bit because yeah. she's she's been coughing, and and Miss Temple asked about her cough in the last previous chapter. So ever since we've been introduced to her, more or less, right? Yeah, and that she would seemed have been, a little sickly. Remind me again. Do, do do they say what month? What month did Jane arrive at Lowood? Was it? Toward the end I, I of the year, I want to think January, or is it the beginning of the? Okay, yeah. so then she said, "Yeah, it was bitterly cold, and all this, like, all the water was frozen, and they couldn't bathe, and so mm-hmm. you're dealing with diseases, typhus, and and tuberculosis, which are probably spread from, because of sanitation, yeah, you know, hygiene, was and then not yeah, effective. you need you need nourishing food because you want to yeah. boost your immune system, and it's cold, and they don't have enough clothes, uh, warm clothes, so it's just a whole bunch of things coming together here again, probably what. What was the case for the clergy daughter's school but, uh, when Charlotte went there? But then they say like the the warmth of the air is that what allowed typhus to to spread? Is that what is that what they're the that, that seems, you know science more well, than I do, right? Like, I should that, say I feel like that's what Charlotte Bronte might have thought, but I don't yeah. know if that's necessarily you know the scientific case because I, I was reading about typhus and it's caused by you know ticks and lice and and mites, so that's more like they should be clean like they need to be wash uh washing more perhaps than mm. the fact that there's a fog of breeding <laughs> disease well the broccoli if broccoli should just get them all to cut their hair right <laughs> do you remember doing the lice checks when you were in grade school yeah i do yeah. i mean okay so mr brocklers had something there right <laughs> I, I guess i remember i was never i was never good at those tests because i had really fair like blondish hair when i was a kid and i remember oh. the, the nurses would always check my hair and they said it was, it was always so tough for them with kids who had blonde hair yeah i hadn't mm. thought of that no yeah. mm. okay so charlotte talks about spring and now we got typhus so now we get to the saddest part of the chapter with helen burns and i believe you said maybe a couple of times that helen is your favorite best, character? best character in the book <laughs> best character in the book and i'll never forget um I'll let, we'll let our listeners know. We've already told the story that Charlene went to the Bronte Parsonage and bought a copy of Jane Eyre, mm-hmm. brought it back to me, and I, that's the copy that I read. And I can specifically remember reading this chapter while on an airplane. I was flying to Texas because I was a best man at my friend's wedding. Mm-hmm. And I remember landing and walking through the airport and telling you in a text message that, oh, my God. Helen's mm. gone. Yeah. And and how much it really affected me. And then there's something that I'll never forget. You specifically wrote me back and you said, Helen was too good for this world. Yeah. Mm. And it's something that I think about a lot where it's just like, again, that's why I think she might be the best character in the book is that she's going to impart so much wisdom onto Jane that's going to shape her for the rest of the novel. Mm-hmm. And so, and in that, and her, I shouldn't say her death is slow. I mean, yeah, she's coughing from the moment we meet her. Yeah. You know, and I didn't realize it because you even told me off the air before we started reading this chapter. You're like, you remember what happens in this chapter, right? And I was like, is it already? <laughs> Do we not get another chapter with Helen? Right. Yeah. You know, and it's just so agonizing that the way that it's just like we talked about her, her concept of, of embracing religion to sort of make it easier to deal with what she's, what, what she's going through. Mm-hmm. And it's still such a slow burn and you're, you're just, it's, it's. It's painful to read those, those last two pages of this chapter and know yeah. what she's going through and how Jane is she doesn't know trying to process it. Yeah, yeah, because there there is mention you know earlier on of Jane trying to understand like she she doesn't really understand that Helen is probably at death's door until almost moments before she sees her mm-hmm. and Jane has this moment where she's her mind is trying to. As she says, comprehend what had been infused into it concerning heaven and hell. 
and for the first time it recoiled baffled from for the first time glancing behind on each side and before it saw all around an unfathomed gulf and you get from helen a little bit of comfort because jane just doesn't doesn't know what's going to happen to helen and mm-hmm. and helen is so sure that she's going to she's going to go to god and 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 be happy well doesn't and the, i think the, another one of those really incredible descriptions from charlotte in this chapter is like when Jane is going to go into the room to see Helen, doesn't she say like, "I didn't know what to"? I I, I was ex- oh, worried about what I was expecting. Have, yeah. Is she going to be a corpse already? What's she going to look like? And then as soon as she sees her, she's just like, "Oh, she's fine." Yeah. You know, and that's even more heartbreaking yeah, when you realize sure. that that's it. That this is still going to be it. You know, you you don't have to. Not everybody who's dying looks like they're going to die. Yeah. I guess right. And we're you're dealing with a ten year old girl who probably hasn't had well, I guess I'm not had too much experience with death that she can remember. Hmm. Are you going somewhere, Helen? Are you going home? Mm, Yes, to my last home. No. No, you mustn't. The other girls are recovering now. I have consumption, not typhus fever, Jane. (coughs) 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 Jane, your feet are bare. Come. Lie down and cover yourself with my quilt. I'm very happy, Jane. And when you hear I'm dead, you must be sure and not grieve. By dying young, I shall escape great sufferings. I had not qualities or talents to make my way very well in the world. And as I said, Jane has not experienced um, death at this point. I mean, I feel like she has... She raised knows, somewhat religious and she knows died. yeah and she yeah. knows that there's an afterlife i was not raised in a religious household i know you were and so i wonder mm. did that happen when you, did your upbringing when you go to catholic school do you get more of a concept of the afterlife and do they is it supposed to be a comfort of some sorts i i mean i think they are supposed to comfort you but i feel like when you're young and i don't know if this is just me but yeah, when you're young and you're learning about the afterlife and what happens, you know, you you probably don't really comprehend death that much. But the the ideas that they put in your head of like heaven and hell and punishment if you're not good, sometimes that can be a little overwhelming. Um, and and Helen at least has a more approachable view of God, I think, than you know than what you might get from Brocklehurst. Uh, so it's just. I can understand that religion can be a, a comfort to you if you're thinking about your your death. And even though I'm not religious, I I anymore, I do feel that um, that that call of like, oh well, there's some something waiting for you after you die is is very strong and compelling. But I also think that with Jane's ideas, um, that that quote I mentioned earlier about her trying to comprehend what had been what she had been taught about heaven and hell, that's also relatable because I feel like that's what I was like or what I thought of when I was young in Catholic school and, you know, thinking about um, the devil or angels and, you know, so it's so mysterious and grand and you don't, you don't really realize um, your place in it, I where, guess. Where wicked, where do wicked children go and all that <laughs> stuff, right? There was no Brocklehurst in your, in your life, I assume. No, right? I mean, I, yeah, I should say that I, I had very good, um, kind teachers. <laughs> There's a lot of um, uh, positive experiences growing up Catholic. But even 
with the whole Catholic upbringing, I feel like I still didn't really get too much of experiences of death because I really didn't have too much anyone close to me who died. I was going to ask, how many funerals have you been to? There was one funeral I went to of my great aunt. She passed kind of unexpectedly, but I don't really remember the funeral because I was pretty young. How old you remember? I think I was like nine or ten, maybe. Oh, okay. So yeah, it was really Jane's age, basically. True. Yeah. But it wasn't it wasn't someone in your peer group. Yeah, that you know. someone was my best friend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I think. I don't know how how many funerals have you been to? Well, it's funny. I mean, I, I've I've been to a handful. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't count them. I guess. Yeah. But, I mean, like when you were young. But right? what's interesting is, yeah, like you said, you've essentially only been to one funeral, and it was when you were ten years old. Mm-hmm. I've been to more funerals, but I was in college. Oh, my I first see. funeral, I was already twenty-one. I had two funerals in the same year, where it was a great grandmother and a grandfather. Oh. I, I feel like there's there are powerful moments, especially when you as a as a 20-year-old, 21-year-old that I was, I got a better concept of what was going on as yeah. compared to be, you being 10, mm-hmm. you know, because it was, they, were, they were very powerful in the sense that this was, again, that my very first funeral was, a, was my great-grandmother. And so all of her children, which would have been my great-aunts and uncles right. and my grandmother, you know, to see them, these people that were always bright and happy and cheery whenever you saw them, whenever, yeah. you visit them on the holidays and everything was all good to see them visually shaken, mm-hmm. you know, and like, I think I mentioned to you off the air, like my, her oldest son, my oldest great uncle, he was just an absolute wreck and was mm-hmm. just like, like, was on top of the coffin and just saying like, oh my God, mom, oh. I missed you all this stuff. And it was just like, this is, this is my great uncle. He was just this, yeah. this rugged guy that, you know, used to that. And it's so, yeah. And like the next funeral that summer was my grandfather who I knew very well. And that mm-hmm. one was painful mm-hmm. seeing my dad. I never seen my dad like that before. Mm-hmm. And then seeing my grandmother, my dad's mother break down, you know, it's, those are, you can't forget those, but at least it sort of prepares you and, and toughens you up to where, when my mother passed away, I had yeah. to be the stoic one. And then, yeah, I had my moments that or mm-hmm. I, I had to hold it together. And I had some moments where I couldn't. Yeah. You know, and so. I wonder if, like, for Helen, was religion any kind of comfort for you? That's weird because, like like we said, I was not, I was never, I was not rela- raised in a religious household, mm-hmm. um, you know. And and your parents, or, or so your dad didn't say anything about believing God or nothing not, like that? Not really. Yeah. Like, we had a. There was a, a a preacher who came. My my mother was like terminally ill in the hospital for about a month, mm-hmm. and so we were going to the hospital every night. And then this this preacher would come into the hospital, and I, he was from the local church. I think my aunt knew him, mm-hmm. and so we kind of got to know him then because he was going to be the one who would be sort of presiding over the funeral. Mm-hmm. But we didn't know him. We didn't go to his church or anything like that. It was just oh, he was a nice guy, friend of the family, yeah. and so he would try to comfort us, but we were not. It's just, you know, I, I have nothing against religion necessarily. I feel like it's it it serves it serves a purpose of guidance and it gives people like I said, it gives people comfort. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason my my folks just chose yeah. not to yeah. to raise us that way. I always tell the story that my sister got married when I was in high school and I showed up at the church and there was a sign on the door that said, This is a Protestant service. Oh. And I said, Mom, we're Protestants and she said, Yeah. <laughs> Just like that, and just just change the subject. Oh, yeah, yeah. oh, okay. I guess we <laughs> no idea. It seems that Helen's words are bringing Jane comfort, and you know, Helen says uh, very touchingly. I think I am very happy, Jane. And when you hear that I am dead, you must be sure and not grieve. 
There is nothing to grieve about. We all must die one day, and the illness which is removing me is not painful. It is gentle and gradual. My mind is at rest. I leave no one to regret me much. I have only a father, and he is lately married and will not miss me. Oh, that last line is just awful. Uh, that's, I it's, mean, that's terrible. Too. I mean, I know we talked about it on this show before because we didn't really know Helen's backstory. And you no. just said, oh, her mother must have passed, but she's got a father. Like, what father, even if he is remarried, would, would not miss his 14-year-old yeah. dying daughter? Yeah, that's just, yeah. Oh, it just really hits. hits and, and the fact that just, and Helen accepts it so easily, it seems like. Uh, which, you know, I guess she just, she that's the way she is. She just accepts everything. I'm a burden or whatever. Yeah. She kind of does go through the school thinking that she's a she's a burden on the teachers, mm-hmm. you know, and she's and she's a burden on her father. So he's he's not there anymore. She's mm-hmm. a burden on Brocklehurst, but yeah. she's not. She's this p- powerful woman. She's she. I've mentioned it in the last episode that yeah, she might have some flaws, but she's she's human. She's very human, mm-hmm. and she used her short period of time on Earth to at least inspire. Yeah. This young orphan girl, always, Jamie. I'm sure she's always kind to everyone she knew, and yeah. everyone appreciated that. Yeah, I didn't know what, Well, I didn't, and I didn't know what to expect when I first read the book because it was just like I thought: Is Jane going to have to just learn everything herself? And it's like, mm. no, she's got these great positive figures. Yeah, yeah you. Unfortunately, the first few chapters you start off with some a lot of negative figures in the whole Reed oh. family. Well, that also shapes her personality. Yeah, exactly. And like I said, we talked about it before that that's why. Um, a lot of the film adaptations really drive home the scenes in Gates' head because it mm. tried to shape. It's good at shaping a, a, a character in a two-hour film. Yeah, yeah, you know. But then it's like then she goes to Lowood, and then she's still not quite there, and she's still still not feeling confident until mm. you know Miss Temple gives her a little bit. But it's it's Helen. It's Helen is the one that that molds her, and mm-hmm. it's you hope that I mean she's going to have to carry on. But it's just it's so it's very it's very bittersweet because now yeah. that she's it's you know Marianne Wilson going to be her her buddy I, you know we don't know we don't know somewhat I guess not as good as Helen she's not as good as Helen and before we wrap up Helen in this chapter there's a, a last line that Jane says about Helen's grave being unmarked and then 15 years later there's a gravestone placed on there with the words resurgam which means I shall rise again. And uh, I find it that Jane doesn't say, but it does seem like uh, Jane did put that gravestone there. Yeah, the spark note says presumably, presumably yeah. by Jane. Yeah, I, I was surprised by that. Because I was thinking, I could believe that she did it because mm-hmm. she knows exactly how long it was before the headstone appeared. You know, yeah. what are the just, odds she's going back there? It's very sweet that Jane would come back to Helen's grave and, and look and probably pay her respects again, remember her friend mm-hmm. and 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 show this and put this word on there that references the idea of a Christian resurrection. Yeah. Well, yeah. she's 10 when Helen passes, basically mm-hmm. she's going to be pretty much 19 ish for mm-hmm. the rest of the novel. Yeah. So that would be six years later after the events of the novel that she could go back and do that. Yeah. That's totally believable. And yeah. it's, it shows you, like I said, how honorable she is and what a, what a lasting impression Helen had on her. Cause she's yeah. the best character in the book. <laughs> Well, she, yes, we'll see her, we will continue to see the effects of Helen's friendship uh, throughout the book. So, Mike, why don't you share your quote first? Okay, like I mentioned already, the this chapter had such a profound effect on me because of the, like I said, the juxtaposition between life and death. Mm-hmm. The way it starts out, she's describing this pastoral beauty of, of yeah. the, her surroundings, and then she has to get to death striking through the school. And so the quote that I actually grabbed was 
one from the very beginning of the chapter when she's talking about all of the flowers being in bloom. Mm -hmm. But then she says, quote, and these fragrant treasures were all useless for most of the inmates of Lowood, except to furnish now and then a handful of herbs and blossoms to put in a coffin. Mm, end quote. Yeah. I mean, that's 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 good. That that Charlotte Bronte. Ooh, uh, yeah. yeah. Because like you know, I know it's this sad truth that children were dying at that mm-hmm. time, you know. But it hit me a little harder because it, it kind of took me out of the escapism of the book. Oh, and it sure. made me really sad, even though these are fictitious characters mm-hmm. who we never really meet. I mean, I guess when you watch the film adaptation, you see extras in the background in the Lowood scenes. But yep. when you're reading this book in your mind, maybe some of the scenes where, where it says that we, we split up into groups and so you kind of get an idea mm-hmm. or the girls trying to bathe or, or eating their burnt porridge. Mm-hmm. They're just fate nameless, sometimes faceless in your in your mind. But the way that she's describing this epidemic striking through them Mm -hmm. and knocking out half the kids in the school it's still so hard and i think she also talks about like the parents or the family members who were lucky enough to have the the kids in lowood who were lucky enough to have a family member who could come pick them up and take them away and then knowing that they're not coming back because they're they're basically going home to die yeah you know and that's why like i said that the idea of you know these fragrant treasures were useless to the in and like is this one of the first few times that she refers to the people as inmates of Lowood oh. as well? Oh no, I think that, I think it's one more time before. But um, it's not common expression. Well, it's, it's not a very point. welcoming expression. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's just a very well written passage by a very talented author. Oh, absolutely, yes. So, what is your quote, Charlene? Okay, so my quote is uh, touching on Jane's other friend. Marianne Wilson. The other friend, yes. (laughs) And Jane says about Marianne, she says, She had a turn for narrative, I for analysis. She liked to inform, I to question. So we got on swimmingly together, deriving much entertainment, if not much improvement from our mutual discourse. And uh, I just, I think it's it's kind of a funny sentence um, mention of this Marianne because she's kind of a throwaway friend. We don't really hear more from her. Okay. But I just, I, I like that description of their friendship because I identify with the way that Jane seems to gravitate towards her because she is a little more of an extrovert, probably. She mm-hmm. likes to talk more and Jane likes to listen. And that's something that I like to do. And I think that you also can be, uh, you can take a turn for the narrative Me? sometimes. Yes. Me? Do I inform and you analyze? Mm-hmm. Is that what they? Is that what she describes Jane in this chapter when talking to Marianne? Yeah. Yeah. It's just the description of an introvert that I really relate to. Yeah. I mean, I pride myself, like I said, I'm an extrovert. Mm-hmm. You went to, what do we say? You went to three schools in your life. I went to 11. Yeah. I was always having to move around. <laughs> I'm, I'm from the Midwest. I got it from my dad. We, we talked to anybody. Mm. we're standing in line with if you know and i i always i feel weird sometimes because i feel like i dominate our conversations if we go out with somebody if we go out with another couple mm. i do a lot of the talking but then but I, then i i kind of lean on that it makes yeah. it, it gives me a little comfort to know that you can uh, take care of any silences that might <laughs> might come up <laughs> but i feel bad in the moment until afterwards whenever everybody's gone you'll always pull me aside and be like no i'm glad you did because mm-hmm. i do pride myself on trying to find something to bring you into the conversation. Sure. I yeah. have this habit, and I know you've seen it before, where mm. if 
if um, if I need to use the bathroom or if I need to yeah. go refill our drink, <laughs> I will drop a, a line where I'll just be like, Charlene, you went to you went to that one Broadway show, didn't you? And then I'll just right. get up and leave. I'm out. Yeah, I don't even wait for the answer. And I and I will also there's also moments in which I will ask you a question that I already know the answer to, but I will make you answer it in front of in front of company so yeah. that it elicits a conversation. You know, mm-hmm. and I think that's I, I just I don't know. It came from years of having jobs where we would get together for like happy hours and birthdays and people would bring their significant others. And then all they do is sit around talking about work. Mm-hmm. I would try to find anything else to talk about work rather than talk about work so that I can work the, the wives and, and husbands yeah. into the conversation. Sure. And I, I mentioned to you as well that I'm very glad that you don't work in the same field that I do mm-hmm. so that I can learn new things. And then when we have conversations with anybody from my film industry background, yeah. I can be like, well, Charlene's the one that's, curing cancer and then we can kind of get and then people go really what kind of scientists are you and then i yeah. always then i can back off and then my work here is done well uh like jane says about marianne i do derive much ent- entertainment from our conversations yeah. marianne's work is done <laughs> yeah i don't think we're going to hear from her again in the rest of the book no i don't think so and sadly helen's work is also done oh well we we are coming to the end of our podcast episode and I just wanted to mention that I've been communicating with some people on my blog and Instagram and I just really enjoy talking to other Jane Eyre fans so thank you to those who have reached out to me with comments and um, I'm so glad that and happy that you guys are listening to the show and if you want to drop a question or uh, leave a comment we'd, I would love to hear from you too on, on my um instagram and um, my blog air guide thank you so much for listening if you enjoyed our podcast please subscribe and leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform this really helps us grow and reach new listeners if you want to talk jane air with me online you can find me on twitter and instagram at air guide that's e-y-r-e and if you want to hear more from me, I host my own podcast called Out of Touchstone, where my good friend Chad and I discuss all the films that Disney produced for their Touchstone Pictures label. You can also find me on Twitter at Mike DeKalb. Thank you, and farewell for the present.